Georgia's DBHDD is urging people to ask a pharmacist about getting naloxone for their first aid kits at home or work. No prescription is needed. Naloxone can rapidly reverse an opioid overdose and restore breathing. Opioidresponse.info. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, I'm Robert Jimison with a special podcast edition of Political Rewind. From time to time, we like to take a step away from the live broadcast and take a deep dive into the issues that are taking up a lot of space in the current news cycle. Today, we are planning to discuss House Bill 481, known to many people as the Heartbeat Bill. Now, a lot has been said about the bill during the legislative session and leading up to its signing by Governor Brian Kemp on May 7th. And since then, the new law has been widely discussed in the media and, along with other states' abortion laws, has continued to remain at the forefront of the news cycle this week. We wanted to take a moment to discuss what will happen if the law goes into effect as it is written today. We do not plan to talk about the potential legal challenges and the political implications of the bill. Rather, our goal is to talk about the law, what is in Georgia code, and how this bill in particular will interact with existing Georgia law. Joining me to help guide us through this discussion is Dr. Amy Steigerwald. She's an associate professor of political science at Georgia State University, and her research focuses on judicial decision-making. We are also joined by Donna Lowry. Donna covers statehouse politics for GPB lawmakers and followed this bill in particular very closely during the legislative session. So Donna, I want to start with you. Let's talk for a minute about the bill. Can you just give us a quick synopsis of what is the bill, what was signed, and what is going to be law as of today? Yes, well, so where we are right now is the governor has signed HB 481, which was led by Representative Ed Setzler, who kind of surprised everybody when the bill first came out because everyone thought there was going to be something that focused more on Roe versus Wade and overturning that, trying to overturn that, challenging that. So the bill focuses on two main things, and one is focusing on the heartbeat, which is finding out whether a doctor determines a detectable heartbeat at about six weeks, generally about the time people are just finding out whether or not they're pregnant or not. That's one part of it. The other part deals with establishing personhood for the fetus. And the personhood part of it deals with everything from making sure that fetus is treated as a person and that is everything from the census to whether or not the mother can apply for um, child support to whether or not there is a um, there is a determination on where where this child stands as at that point in terms of as a fetus. So it is a, a very a very strict bill, something nobody uh, else has quite focused on the personhood on it p- part of it and the personhood aspect to it is the thing that is the um, the cloudiest in terms of everybody understanding what is going on with this. We're not sure what this all means. And I think that's what we're going to delve in a little bit more today. So Dr. Steigerwald, yeah. explain for us the, the personhood aspect. What happens when this law, if it goes into effect as it's written today, what happens and what rights does a unborn fetus with a heartbeat now gain? Well, so first we've got to be clear that what happens is that the Georgia Annotated Code begins in Chapter 1, and one of the very first things that it does is provides definitions about who is a person. And in part, they did that originally to distinguish between a person being a human being and a corporate person, to note that human beings have certain rights, and there is also under the law in certain areas corporations as persons, but they have much more defined rights, and that can also be taken away. And the reason that that's important is because what they've 
they've done, and the first very part of it is they've redefined what includes a human being. So a human being now is uh, includes also an unborn child as soon as there is uh, detectable fetal pole activity, which is what that, that heartbeat that we're talking about is. And so that now means that this definition of human being or person goes through the entirety of the rest of the code. The law itself, or the legislation, I should say, the legislation of HB 481 specifically notes a couple of things. So it also, in that exact same section, one of the first things it does is say that not only does a human being include an unborn child, but that that also now means that for census purposes, for counting who it is that's residing in the state of Georgia whenever we do the decennial censuses, that the unborn child also can be counted within that. So that's sort of a strong statement that this is, in fact, a person that we're going to be counting within that that we're going to be utilizing there. And it also in other places does things such as extend um, the ability to get child support to throughout the pregnancy, um, as well as uh, counting the unborn child for uh, as a dependent for purposes of taxes. Where I think the biggest question comes in is what does it mean to have redefined the word person and the word and the, the phrase human being in that very first part of the code? Does that now mean as we read through all the rest of the code in any place where it refers to a person or a human being that we can read it as a human being, including an unborn child with a detectable heartbeat? And um, State Rep. Josh McLaurin um, from District 51, he actually brought this up. Um, there's been a lot of lot of debate over this, and he brought this up on Twitter. Um, he said, you know, one of the he's arguing about the the personhood and how all this is going to play out. He said the second argument being made is that the new definition of quote natural person includes fetuses and therefore works an expansion of murder statutes. But this ignores that the murder statutes use the word human being. And then I went back and looked at the bill. Um, in line 63 of the bill, it says, quote, natural persons means any human being, including an unborn child. So his argument there, you know, is answered by the bill itself. The bill determines that that those two are the same thing, including the human fetus. So anywhere we're looking at any criminal charges, you know, we're now counting the heart beating fetus the same way we would as a born child out of the womb. And Sessler made a big deal out of that, that 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 the medical science has changed so much that this is the the time has come for us to look at it as, as far as he's concerned as the the fetus as a person because we can determine now and we couldn't in 1973 when Roe versus Wade was decided on whether or not the fetus was actually a person. So that's what that's what the big thing is with this bill. That's what it stands on. So the large debate right now is coming around, you know, the headlines over women being criminalized. Um, this has definitely been the social media takeaway. There's been a Slate article written about it. The Washington Post has written about it. Um, different attorneys have written about it for Law.com. All over the place over the last couple of days, you've seen people arguing about this. And for right now, the criminal abortion statute, and I'll read it, it says a person commits the offense of criminal abortion when in violation of code section 16-12-141, he or she administers any medicine, drugs, or other substances, other substance, whatever, to any woman or when he or she uses any instrument or other means whatever upon any woman with the intent to produce a miscarriage or abortion. 
that has been used and cited in the two cases that I know of where women were tried to bring to trial or charges were presented, but they were eventually dropped, where they you know, committed their own abortion, but the court found that the way this is written, it has to be a third-party actor upon the woman who was pregnant. How is that potentially going to change with the new law? So my reading is that that portion of the criminal statute has not been amended. So it stands in the exact same way that it was prior to the passage of HB 481. And so it is not clear whether or not the definition of criminal abortion, as opposed to the definition of abortion, has been expanded. So one of the things that 16-12-141 did is now is revised to do is to greatly expand the definition of abortion. And that's where a lot of the concerns are coming in, because where previously it is it very much uses uh, language that suggests that it can't be applied to the woman. So it's administers to or uses upon. Right. Which suggests that there's another party that's involved there. The revision in 1612 to what the revision to 1612 141 alters it to now say that um, abortion includes simply using a substance. And so the person who uses a substance is a woman. And so that is where uh, the concern about it being broadened is coming in. So the where it gets really tricky is the fact that. Even though 16-12-140 refers to abortion as defined under 16-12-141, 16-12-140 also provides its own definition of criminal abortion. That definition has not been altered. Mm -hmm. So in that situation, it suggests that there is not a change as to what would be prosecuted under the crime of criminal abortion. Where this gets trickier, though, is going back to that first discussion we had about the definition of person being changed to include human beings, uh, including unborn children is whether or not that now means that all of the other statutes that are in the criminal code that discuss actions taken against a person, including homicide, would now be able to be applied to the woman. So the question being, is it not that she would be charged with criminal abortion, but rather that she could be charged with homicide um, or uh, willful negligence or something like that? When Ed Setzler and Senator Jen Jordan debated this topic on CNN, Ed Setzler's defense for the prosecution of women who participated in their own abortion was this affirmative defense in the bill. Uh, Dr. Steigerwald, can you explain this affirmative defense and what does it say? Sure. And I think we first need to start with what's an affirmative defense. So an affirmative defense is the idea that there is something written into law which you can bring up to say, yes, action A happened, but this is why I should not be held accountable under the statute. The most basic affirmative defense is self-defense to homicide. Yes, in fact, someone else was harmed or killed, but I did so to protect myself. So what they did in the statute, Setzler wrote in four or actually five different affirmative defenses. The first four all have to do with the provider and the idea that they might have unintentionally or accidentally caused uh, the unborn child to die while providing other medical care. 
The fifth one is about the woman. And it says that under this article, that if a woman believes she had a valid medical emergency, that therefore that would be an affirmative defense um, against being charged under this article, right? So in other words, if she believed that she had a valid medical emergency, which is one of the exceptions under the law, then they would not uh, hold her accountable. And the argument, uh, there, there's been a couple of things that I've seen. Uh, one argument is that that had to do with uh, concerns about those who had been caught in sex trafficking and ensuring that they were not being um, sort of held accountable for things that might have happened to them in that situation. Um, and so sort of to protect the woman and to ensure that sort of her safety was covered. Uh, the argument on the other side that um, Senator Jen Jordan was bringing up was sort of the question of why is if the woman is not supposed to be held liable under this article at all, would she ever need an affirmative defense? So it sort of brings up the question of affirmative defense against what exactly? That's the question I had when reading that fifth one, because if a woman can't be charged with criminal abortion at all, so say a woman believes mm -hmm. she she personally believes that, you know, if she does not terminate the pregnancy at eight weeks, that she'll have a medical emergency She's going to have to prove that she reasonably, I mean, the way it was written, the way it's written here, that, quote, she reasonably believed that an abortion was the only way to prevent a medical emergency if she's brought in for investigation. And I want to talk about that in a second. Um, she's going to have to prove that she reasonably believed there was a medical emergency, meaning they're going to ask her, did you consult with a physician? And then mm -hmm. it goes back to those first four affirmative defenses. How does that play if criminal abortion doesn't allow for the woman to be charged? That's an excellent question. And I think that's where a lot of the concern comes in, because, again, why would you need an affirmative defense if, in fact, there's nothing to defend again because you can't be held criminally liable? And I think that's where a lot of the concern comes up because it's unclear. Is that meaning that does let me back that up? Is it perhaps suggesting that the definition of abortion, which is at the beginning of uh, the revised portion of 1612-141, is supposed to be looked at to determine what is, in fact, legal and not legal, including for the woman. And so that is, I think, where a lot of the concern is coming in about how exactly to interpret this, because, again, there is no reason for an affirmative defense if, in fact— you are covered by the statute in the first place. Yeah. And, you know, Setzler talked about these being wild claims, that, that there was no basis in law, that he claims that the, no one will be prosecuted or going to jail for having an abortion and that nothing in the law changes the circumstances or allows for a criminal exposure um, to women when it comes to, to this particular bill. And yet we're not sure. We really don't know. And I think they want that deliberately vague. Right. I think that is part of it. And I think, again, that it is, in fact, possible that under the criminal abortion statute, we will not see a change in behavior in the sense of how women are going to be treated. The question, however, is whether or not other criminal statutes, now that we've redefined who is included in a person, can be applied to women. And that is the part that is not actually, we don't know what that means. And as, and especially if we go back to sort of previous case law, like a lot of the things that we point to and a lot of the previous cases that have happened have focused a lot on the idea when they have attempted to um, hold women liable about the fact that 
previously human beings under uh, Georgia code did not include unborn children. Right. That is why, in fact, there's a separate uh, under the homicide uh, portion. There actually is a separate uh, part for feticide. For feticide, yes. Yes. So that's 16-5-80. And in there, there's a affirmative, again, an affirmative defense that specifically notes that the provision cannot be used against the woman. But part of that uh, portion of the bill is that, number one, it's written, again, in this way to suggest it's an action being taken against a woman. And a byproduct of that is the unborn child is killed. But we should also note that that was written specifically because under the law prior to the passage of the statute dealing creating the crime of feticide, there was, in fact, no repercussions if during the commission of a felony or if a woman was killed, the fetus was also killed. So when did that come about? That's an excellent question. I can find it for you. I didn't know whether this has been something we've been dealing with in law for a while. I personally don't remember it being, I don't think it's been there for a long time, but I don't have the legal background to, to know that. But I think it is fascinating to look at when that would have come about and how that how that impacts what we're dealing with now and whether or not there was a, um, if that has been part of the move toward what we're seeing now in terms of this over trying to change things in terms of Roe versus Wade. And while you while you're looking that up um, in the Washington Post piece, although they say women cannot be criminalized under the current laws, they do say women can be investigated. My question is, what does an investigation lead to in this circumstance? And if a you know investigator looks into a woman who miscarries and finds that the affirmative defense didn't apply, she did not reasonably believe that it was a medical emergency, what happens at that point? So first, just to very quickly jump back to things. So it turns out the feticide statute was passed in 2006. Okay. Right. So it's fairly a fairly, recent. yeah, it's a fairly recent one. It was part of during the early 2000s uh, nationwide. There was, again, sort of a push to pass a number of laws that were starting to recognize that. Again, it's uh, part of a really sort of long-term legal strategy to uh, embed in law the idea that the unborn child has rights that exist outside of the woman as a way to sort of move towards that. And so that is a it is a relatively recent law. And I think it's also notable because the purpose for passing it is because under the law previously, right prior to 2006, the the fetus there, there was, in fact, no additional criminal penalty if in the commission of the crime you also killed the fetus. Right. That wasn't part of it. So that put that in there. But it also sort of exists outside. Right. Because other that sort of tells us that mm-hmm. the definition of human being up to that point did not include, did not include. the fetus, which is where that change comes in um, with the miscarriage. There's a couple of different levels here. So when we talk, I think first, I do want to point out that the comment in the Washington Post piece, which was not given a lot of explanation, was that a woman could not be successfully convicted Which doesn't mean that she might not be charged or Mm -hmm. she might not be arrested or she might not be investigated or might not go to trial. But it suggests that she won't ultimately be successfully convicted. And I do think that we need to acknowledge that there's a lot of room in between there of what might be going on Um, with miscarriages. They are 
I think that the investigation of the miscarriages as it's being discussed at this moment, so because we're not entirely sure whether or not we're now going to be able to apply the various crimes against persons, so that's code 16-5, and there's a couple of different ones, right? Number 16-5-1 is homicide, and there's also some other varieties. That's sort of its own question. A separate one is that under this statute— Doctors are not allowed to perform abortions, except in very uh, limited, fairly limited circumstances. So they're allowed to post the six weeks, post the six weeks. And to be perfectly blunt, prior to the six weeks, there's not going to be anything happening. Um, A woman, actually, the the sort of irony of all of this is those first two weeks is uh, we start counting from the day that a woman starts her period. You can't actually get pregnant while you have your period. You can't even, right, you're not ovulating until two weeks later. Um, The actual actions where it would take place come into those four weeks. And so it is a little bit of a misnomer, but that is sort of where that comes in. And and an anecdotal piece here. I was talking to a friend who recently got pregnant. She has um, polycystic ovarian syndrome, and Mm -hmm. she mentioned that it is not unusual for her to miss a period or multiple periods in a year. So when she missed her first period, she had no idea that she was pregnant. She did not find out that she was pregnant until eight and a half weeks into her pregnancy. Wow. Exactly. There's also the fact that, right, all of this presumes that women have a 28-day cycle. Most women do not. Some women have a shorter cycle. Some women can have much longer cycles, right? The actual cycle, it's not missing a period, but it can be 39, 40 days. And so that can sort of cause a lot of confusion in all of this. Now that I've taken us down a rabbit hole of you know, understanding the gestation cycle. Well, that's what we're here for. We're, we're exactly. going down this rabbit yes, this, hole. This is, this is what I'm here for is lots of uh, sort of weird things. So the question now becomes, and where the investigation of a miscarriage might be coming in, is that what it really is is an investigation of the doctor as to whether or not perhaps the doctor committed an illegal abortion that led to a miscarriage. And that is where, and because the problem is, is that the doctors have to document within this, and these records can be um, requested by the district attorney, both if, right, of all the hospitals in their jurisdiction, but also they can request records for any person who resides in their jurisdiction, even if they've gone somewhere else. And so the question now becomes, as the doctors have to document uh, what it is that they've done and whether what actions they might have taken and where a miscarriage comes in, we run into this sort of murky world of what are we going to be looking for. Um, What makes this difficult is that somewhere between one-third to uh, about 40% of all pregnancies will end in a miscarriage, even after we've detected that fetal pole activity, mm-hmm. right? So detecting fetal pole activity at six weeks does not, in fact, ensure that the pregnancy will be a viable one. Right? And fetal the pole fetus. activity you're talking about is, is what they're referencing is the heartbeat. The heartbeat. Exactly. Yeah, what it... Technically, there's not a heartbeat. What you have is the, the woman's blood is flowing yes. through and we can we can fill it. So we call it fetal pole activity. And so the the issue in part is that lots of women are going to miscarry. And they're going to miscarry not because they have done anything, but because the body rejects 
the embryo probably because it determined that there was something that was incompatible with life or that it may be right there there are some women unfortunately who have massive fertility problems and they're simply unable to carry and not to and not to add any negativity to this but it is possible that someone who you know didn't know they were pregnant and continued drinking or smoking could have added to the risk of a miscarry even if it was inevitable as i mean i don't know the science there and and i think that's what a lot of people are asking questions about is if i don't know i'm pregnant and i continue drinking or i you know did know i was pregnant and continued you know what would be considered risky behaviors would that also be investigated and that is again an area that we're not entirely sure of right and some of what makes this so difficult is we don't actually even know how risky those behaviors are, right? Are having a couple of drinks while you're, especially in the early stages of pregnancy, actually something that, in fact, is a problem? Or is it simply the fact that lots of women have had miscarriages, right? Mm-hmm. We, it's something we don't really talk about. But, you know, in general, probably one out of every two to three women you know have had a miscarriage at some point, uh, perhaps multiple, right? We don't talk about it publicly, but it's an incredibly um, sort of simple. And many of the women who miscarry then go on to have successful pregnancies. In fact, um, there are quite a lot of us who have, you know, you miscarry the first time and then, um, you know, doctors kind of explain it as, well, your body's trying to figure out what is this thing? And then the next time it works really quite well. Um, and so part of what happens here is for we don't we don't know. And this is the kind of thing where we can't really do tests to try to find out. We don't try to get women pregnant and then see, like, well, what happens if you have five drinks? What yeah. happens if you have ten? Um, so we don't know there. But, again, the pr- issue is is what is being tracked here and what are we starting to look into? And how is it that under this law we're now going to be um, particularly monitoring the activity of uh the OBGYN community when they're dealing with women, because there's going to be an awful lot of women who they will see where they will detect a fetal heartbeat. That then is right, sort of reported in the records and that pregnancy may right there may in fact be a spontaneous abortion in the weeks uh, following that. And so part of the question is now, well, was it just a spontaneous abortion? Was there some activity that was done, right, particularly by the doctor that might have led to this, right? So what do we do in the instances of people who might also have uh, other medical conditions such that they're trying to, right, both sustain the pregnancy but also sustain, right, the mother's health? And we don't always, right, we're we're not, again, sure about the interactions of some of these drugs, right? What if somebody is undergoing chemotherapy? Mm Mm-hmm. Right. There's a lot of these situations which occur really pretty frequently that we're also the problem is we just don't know. And it's coming into that of how is it then being reported and where does that come in? Um, And also it's sort of a question of, you know, one would presume that if a woman miscarries, she's probably going to go back and see. Right. If she's been in, she's seen the OBGYN. They did um, at that stage would be a transvaginal or uh, transvaginal um, with the wand. What's that called? Ultrasound. Ultrasound. Thank you. Because yeah. <laughs> I completely blanked. Right. They would be doing that. They would be able to detect it. Right. That would be recorded. Um, if she miscarries, she may or may not go back to the doctor. Mm-hmm. So now we also have this other interesting question of our doctors now 
are they right? Are, are the women once they've detected activity, must they go back and report in to see what's happening? Do the doctors have a duty now to it's the record keeping question. to keep up the record keeping to you know figure it out? Um, do they have some duty now to also figure out how the woman right? Because that's the thing is we don't know what causes a miscarriage. Mm-hmm. It's actually utterly amazing that women have been giving birth for millennia and we have no idea what causes a miscarriage what causes a successful pregnancy we don't even know what causes labor and so while we have a bill that is based a lot on what we think medical science has you know where we've come with medical science there's still so many questions left to determine what what is going on when it comes to what's in our bodies and what medical science can actually prove and not prove. So so there that's what makes it all murky in all of this, I think. And another legal argument and then we'll wrap it up here. I just wanted to ask about the the potential for being charged if you leave the state for an abortion. Um, there are neighboring states that you know, some states are attempting to pass very restrictive abortion laws, Alabama, for example, but other states, you know, within traveling distance, um, you can still obtain an abortion at up to 20 and um, sometimes 24 weeks. What is the criminal implication and what are the possibilities? I mean, and this is strictly hypothetical because this this law has not gone into it's not active yet. Um, we won't know this until it does become active. But what are what are the, you know, possibility for, as um, one appellate, appellate attorney called it, prosecu- prosecutorial discretion when it comes to charging a woman with conspiracy to commit a crime if she makes an appointment with a physician to obtain an abortion in another state post six weeks? So prosecutorial discretion is the notion that prosecutors have, in fact, a lot of authority over what it is that they bring charges against a person for, right? They really do have, because part of it is, is that they have the ability to read the statute and make their interpretation of it and then make charging decisions um, after that. And sometimes, right, we do in fact see, right, that people are found to be not guilty, right, because the jury says no. Right. We don't really think that they did this. Right. There wasn't enough proof. Um, Sometimes we do, in fact, see cases being dismissed by judges because they say, look, this really wasn't um, the right. It's not the right charge. And the person right really should not have been arrested for this. But the idea is that prosecutors have quite a lot of power to be able to read these statutes and determine how it is that they want to apply them and who they want to um, apply them to. So on that point, the the question. So the the. The first part of the question, can women be charged for their own abortion? In theory, based off of what you just gave me about prosecutorial discretion, in theory, the answer is yes, they can be charged. Yes. But the murky part comes in terms of will they be convicted? Yes. And we won't know that until it's tried. Yes. Though I think it's even more so that it is hard to... It is hard to see a valid charging decision under the criminal abortion statute where it is much easier to see criminal charges being brought is under the homicide statute. The crimes against persons because now person is defined to include the unborn child. And so in that instance, right, it doesn't matter what state you're in if you commit homicide, right? Homicide is homicide. homicide. 
And in that instance right here, because they're talking about being able to get the records of women who uh, it's about where that the that the D.A. has um, the ability to request records based upon the residence of the legal residence of the woman, as opposed to where it was that physically uh, the behavior took place. That's where there becomes this concern that now we're going to see, for example, district attorneys trying to figure out have women gone um, across states? Because I think the the real question is going to be now, again, like, let me sort of back up that. Yes, Prosecutors could bring a charge under anything that they want to. Mm-hmm. And it happens all the time. Right. We need to be clear on that, that, you know, there there are there are very, very good prosecutors. There are also those that um, are not so great and sometimes make decisions uh, that are maybe less grounded in the law. There's also the fact that prosecutors and especially district attorneys in a lot of areas are elected, which means that there can be pressures to bring certain types of prosecutions in part to kind of make a stand that are political motivation behind that. And and we know that. But the other side of it is that so with the criminal prosecution, though, again, under the criminal abortion statute, unless the determination is made that the definition that is in. 141 can be applied under 140. We won't see it there. Mm-hmm. Where, however, I think that there is room for a prosecutor to argue that they should be able to bring this, right? And they've tried in past times. We should sort of be clear on that. People have, prosecutors have tried in past times to bring homicide charges against women who either self terminated or got an abortion. And the case in 2015 and the case in 1999, but the missing piece was the personhood aspect. Exactly. Right. In all of those, the determination was made that the unborn child was, in fact, not considered a human being. Um, And so, for example, uh, when we look at um, some of the there's a couple of uh, earlier cases that um, took place, there was one in particular that was looking at uh, charging someone, uh, Pineda State. that was it, um, about whether or not he could be charged. This was in 2011 um, for malicious, mur- for malice murder when he um, killed three different people, including the, un- and the, the fourth was the unborn child of uh, one of the women who was killed. And in there, the court determined that um, it could not be applied in part because the court said that a human being does not, in fact, include the unborn child. Right there, they were saying that the unborn quote the unborn child was alive solely in the mother's uterus, died died due to the death of the mother, and never had an independent circulation or other evidence of independent existence. And so in that sense, they suggested that the law would that the law didn't apply, especially because you couldn't you could not um, construct the unborn child as being a human being under that. The biggest change again to one dash two dash one is to now say that, no, that unborn child is a human being, which really sort of changes completely the legal analysis that was utilized um, in Pineda v. State. And so I think that's going to be sort of one of the big questions that um, comes in is how do we now interpret that and where does it get used? So just to wrap up here, 
there's a lot there's a lot going on here this is a lot more complicated than the the you know 400 word you know piece about you know yes this can happen the piece that says no this can't happen you know the law review that says you know no this can't happen the law review that says yes this can happen so as of right now with the law signed as it is and if it goes into law as of on january 1st 2020 what what do you expect don i'll start with you I think that we're going to have to, we're going to have to wait to see what a lot of it is going to mean. I think that there it uh, there will be a lot of tests on this, and we're just going to have to wait and see. You know, it, it's still so murky. I think people are trying to read something into to this that uh, I don't even think those who uh, uh, Representative Sessler or anybody else anticipated. All the things that are going to come up in all of this, um, they're working, they're going down one path. Uh, I think it's strategic and the way they want to, um, to, to, to look at Roe versus Wade in a different way and, and, and focus on this whole idea of personhood. But I think they don't really know what it all means. And this is they're they're testing the waters. And Georgia is going to be where everybody is going to be looking to see what happens when it comes to this. So I think we still have a lot to to uh, learn. And about just, what happens. And just quickly to underscore what you just said, that they don't really know what happened, what's going to happen. Um, Appellate attorney Andrew Fleischman for a law firm Ross and Pines in Atlanta, he pointed out that the personhood aspect could also encompass um, issues when it comes to fourth, four, uh, 14th Amendment rights for women who are in prison and their unborn child. Does that child now face a, you know unlawful imprisonment and all right. sorts of stuff? So that's just a quick note just to say that you're right. So it, much. There's so many yeah. things that probably weren't anticipated. Um, Amy, same question to you. Uh, when this law, go, if this law were to go into effect unchallenged as it is written today, what do you expect? Because ah, I was going to say the, the key. But yeah, I was going to say yeah. the flip answer yeah. is it's going to be challenged almost immediately and likely be the source of lots of litigation. And we but- are fully acknowledging that the other you know laws similar to this have been challenged, mm-hmm. have been you know put out, put on hold, and have faced federal federal challenges for more clarification. But we're talking about if this law goes into effect as written. If it goes into effect as written, Don is completely right that in many ways we don't really know. I think that there's going to be wide variation across the state about how it is that district attorneys uh, interpret various provisions. I think where we are going to see um, perhaps the first steps of a change in behavior is actually with doctors about um, whether or not, for example, even though the law separates out, for example, um, things that are done in the cases of spontaneous abortion. So, for example, a lot of times when when women miscarry, they very commonly have a procedure known as a dilation and curatage, um, which is can also be used as a as an abortion um, technique. You also have the issue of ectopic pregnancies, which is where the fertilized egg has uh, attached not in the uterus. A lot of times, it's on the fallopian tubes, and so in both of these instances, you are um, having to perform a type of surgery which is very similar um, to an abortion. And even though those are both taken out, there is some concern, I think, of whether or not, uh, particularly in the case of spontaneous abortions, that we might see doctors, for example being less willing to say, let's do a DNC, you know, sort of from the outset, that maybe there there's going to be uh, more of a concern of, well, like, we know that the miscarriage is coming, like, you should 
wait for it to happen, or even if it seems to be particularly bad, that you should still kind of let that happen naturally um, because of their concern of how they might be held legally responsible. Um, the concern there is obviously for the woman's health. Um, it is not a fun thing to go through to have a miscarriage. Um, there also can be real issues. The reason uh, DNCs are done a lot of times are because for whatever reason, even though um, the the fetus or unborn child has died, the body is not expelling it, um, and that can turn septic and toxic. And so there's concerns about getting that out. And so I think that in part we're going to see a lot of um, – I think we're going to see hesitancy on the part of the doctors of how it is that they're going to be treating pregnant women, of what they're going to be doing. Mm -hmm. um, I think we're certainly going to be seeing um, that uh, those clinics that prov uh, provide um, abortions are also going to now have to be uh, much more concerned. Right? I imagine there's going to be more oversight of them. They're going to be much more concerned about what is going on. Um, I think there's going to start to be, again, like when it comes to the record keeping, uh, there's this question of when we say sort of uh, the way the law is written, it suggests um, that a medical um, that there's two parts of it where, again, that um, can leave out that apply really sort of to the doctor, that the doctor can um, say, right, that emergency, right, a medical emergency is, quote, a condition in which an abortion is necessary in order to prevent the death of the pregnant woman or substantial and irreversible physical impairment of a major bodily function of a pregnant woman. I think some of the concern is going to be, again, for doctors, what does that mean? What does that exactly mean? What does that exactly mean? And to what level are they going to be questioned on it, right? I mean, is a substantial impairment, you know, substantial and irreversible physical impairment, how serious does that have to be, mm -hmm. right? What does that look like? What does that have to be? Um, similarly, when we talk about medically futile, that's, quote, in a reasonable medical judgment, an unborn child has a profound and irremediable congenital or chromosomal anomaly, which is incompatible with sustaining life after birth. Again, what does that mean? Right. Even if we say that it's in reasonable medical judgment. Well, right. Who's determining what's who's, reasonable who's, yeah. medical judgment? How far, again, does that go? And so I I think some of what we're also going to see is a lot, right, there, there's going to be concerns there. Um, and I think there's going to be concerns, again, by the medical community about um, malpractice issues uh, because they can also be brought um, – under this, there's civil penalties. It's not just criminal penalties. There's also civil penalties that can be brought against them for their behavior. And so I think we might start to see some very significant shifts in how the medical community is approaching taking care of women who are pregnant. Mm -hmm. um, and that could be somewhat concerning, especially if they are now less willing to intervene um, because they are concerned about running afoul of the new law. You and have, a state that already has one of the highest rates of maternal mortality right, in the country. You have exactly. your medical students already deciding that they want to go to become obstetricians to begin with. So we're going to we're probably going to see a pushback, you know, and that as a specialty. I think so. And I mean, I think even more so. So not only do we have one of the highest rates of uh maternal mortality in the country, um, we like the it's even higher if you separate out just women of color. Mm -hmm. And of course, Georgia has a very large population of women of color and the maternal mortality rates there are 
abysmal. And they continue to spike when you go into rural areas versus the metro areas. And so that's, again, of concern, especially if what this is causing, if, if in fact this is really not about sort of the woman, but now about doctors while trying to take care of a pregnant woman who, in fact, may very much so want to carry right the pregnancy to term, um, how it is that they're treating the pregnant women and what types of interventions they might decide to do if, for example, the woman's life or uh, health seems to be coming into question. Yeah. Well, thank you guys both for for sitting down and, and trying to hash through some of these details with me. It sounds like, you know, there's there's more questions than answers still at this point. But the you know, the path could possibly be there for criminal charges to be brought, like you said. But we don't know for sure, you know, what that conviction component is. And we're just gonna have to wait and see until that gets in front of a judge. Well, thank you both for taking your time. This has been a special edition of Political Rewind on GPB. I'm Robert Jimison, here with Dr. Amy Steigerwald and Donald Arby. Thank you for tuning in to this special podcast edition of Political Rewind. You can find more information about all the bills, the definitions, and all the things we discussed during this podcast episode at gpbnews.org.